0: Our text this morning comes from the book of 2 Thessalonians, and we will be reading verses 1 through 12. From Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, which is in in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must always give thanks to God for you. This is only right because of your faithfulness is growing by leaps and by bounds. And the love that all of you have for each other is increasing. That's we ourselves are bra- That's why we ourselves are bragging about you in God's churches. We tell about your endurance and about your faithfulness in all the harassments and trouble that you put up with. This shows that God's judgment is right and that you will be considered worthy of God's kingdom for which you are suffering. After all, it is right for God to pay back the ones making trouble for you with trouble and to pay back you who are having trouble with relief along with us. This payback will come when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his powerful angels. He will give justice with blazing fire to those who don't recognize God and do not obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the Lord's presence and away from his mighty glory. This will happen when he comes on the day to receive honor from his holy people and to be admired by everyone who has believed. And our testimony to you was believed. We are constantly praying for you for this, that our God will make you worthy of his calling and accomplish every good desire and faithful work by his power. Then the name of the Lord Jesus will be honored among you and you will be honored by him consistent with the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I I talked about this a little bit last week, that it's sometimes difficult to know what it's like to be successful as a pastor or as a church. I I don't know about you. When you think about it in your mind, if I were to ask you of the question, uh, how do you know that our church is doing well? How do you know that our church is succeeding, as it were? I, I wonder what kind of responses I would get if I were to ask you all that. I won't ask you to shout them out now. That's okay. But think about that for a second. In, in your mind, when, when someone asks you, how is your church doing? When you run into somebody in the community and they say, how is Longview Church the Nazarene doing? What metrics do you use in your head to answer that question? Now, if I'm perfectly honest, and I'm trying to be honest, oftentimes when people ask me that question, guess what my first thoughts are? If you're here last week, you know, because I told you My, my first, my gut reactions and gut reactions aren't often right, but, and this one's not, but my first gut reaction is numbers and noses. How many people were in service this last week? And how much money did we bring in? How's our budget doing? That tends to be the metrics that that first come to mind when someone asks, how is your church doing? I don't think that's necessarily right, but it's the first thing that often comes to my mind. Why? Because it's easy to measure, right? It's easy to measure. It's easy for me to look out and count how many of you are here and say, we had more here this week than last week or vice versa and feel good or bad about that. It's easy if someone were to ask me, how's the church doing, that I might maybe turn to the back of the bulletin. It is on the back of your bulletin, by the way, and look at how we're doing. How's our budget doing? How much did we raise last week? How's our budget versus actual? Are we succeeding in that? These are the numbers we often use because, again, they're, they're tangible. They're easy sort of just to, to glom onto. But I'd, I'd like to just point out as we look at our text today, the metrics that Paul seems to be using with regards to the health of the church, at least the church at Thessalonica. What does Paul say? He, he, he says and he boasts about the things in the church of Thessalonica that aren't very easy to measure, at least kind of on the, on the surface level. They're not easy to measure. So the two things that Paul talks about are love and faith. So, so I'd like you to quick write down how I'm supposed to y- measure love and faith. Paul doesn't mention numbers. He doesn't talk about the, at least at this point, he doesn't talk about the collection for Jerusalem. He, d- he doesn't talk about any of like the finance stuff. He doesn't talk about how well they're doing in supporting whoever it is, the, is their, their pastoral or leader at that time. He, he doesn't talk about how many are in their gatherings. He just says, your faith is increasing in fact, he says, I like the way that the, this particular translation puts it, your faith is growing by leaps and bounds. Right? He looks at him, he says, your faith is growing. Now, now, we can look at how that might work out and how we might measure that, but it's hard. It's not quite as tangible as offerings, for instance. And then he says, your love for one another is increasing. So so the things that Paul looks at that that he is excited about in the Thessalonian church is faith and his love. And what I love about this and and this particular translation misses is he doesn't just say your faith for one another like in group love. Uh, He actually says your faith for one another and for everybody. Right, So that the tangible effects that Paul looks at within the body of Christ to show that their faith is growing, to show that they are healthy and that they are strong, is that they are loving one another and the people around them. Harder metrics to measure. Now, if, if someone were to ask me, is the faith and love of your people growing? Probably what I would say is, I think so. From what I can tell, from what I see, yes. But it's a little bit harder to measure. And then Paul says something even even more crazy that he says that that when he's around other people and when he's at other churches, the thing that he boasts about is, is not the numbers, is not the programs. He says, I boast in your endurance and suffering. Which again is kind of a crazy metric to boast about. Again, I meet with a lot of pastors, and we tend to talk about the things we're doing as a church, and we tend to talk about we tend to talk about numbers and and noses, and we tend to talk about programming and what we're doing in the community, but very rarely do we talk about how we are suffering for the faith. At least as a metric of success. And, and if you think about it, oftentimes in our own lives, suffering is not something we generally boast about or think, hmm, this is a good thing. Generally, when we suffer, the first question, again, gut reaction, but not always the correct one, is what have I done to deserve this? You ever been in that situation? Something really, really bad happens? Something that Sheldon reminded me about this morning when he asked that community cue? I remember the first question I asked after that happened was, what did we do to deserve this? Not God is faithful in suffering, not how might I glorify God in this, but God, what did we offend you? Did we hurt you? Did we do something wrong that you are doing this to us? But Paul flips the script. he talks about suffering as something that actually brings glory to God and something that 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 is worth boasting over. now now, I want to be clear. I don't think Paul ever says, go court suffering, right? I don't think Paul ever really says, you know, go out and find a fight, right? So that you can boast about your suffering. I don't even think Paul says, go and court, you know, whatever death might occur because of your suffering and persecution in the church. Paul doesn't say that. What he says is in your suffering, you are faithful. And in that God is glorified. There's this whole weird middle section. Now, when when I kind of research this particular um, passage of scripture, um, generally, there's not a whole lot of talk about the middle section because not a whole lot of people know really what it means, right? Let me just read it for you because it bears repeating. (laughs) Paul says, I've got to find it here. (laughs) Here it is. This shows that God's judgment is right. And that you will be considered worthy of God's kingdom for which you are suffering. Right after saying they're suffering, Paul says, This shows that God's judgment is right. Is God causing the suffering? Is God giving them suffering to somehow test them? It's iffy quite frankly, textually speaking, on what exactly Paul means by this. And so, take the next three or four minutes as this is how I see it. You know, I think I'm, all, I'm on the right track, but, but like Paul sometimes says, this is me. Maybe, I don't know if it's God yet. I haven't discerned that all the way through yet. But, but this idea that, that when people suffer... The the reason that God has proved right in that, that God's judgment is right in this, for me, it comes down to this idea of of Paul that he often talks about that God has entrusted the gospel to us, right? We are entrusted with the gospel. We are entrusted with this proclamation that that Jesus is Lord and no one else is, right? We're entrusted with this. And and it's something that that for, for us sometimes, but for certainly for the Thessalonians would meet resistance in the communities around them. And their faithful endurance in the midst of that suffering proves that God was right to entrust them with that gospel. Again, I'm going to be perfectly honest and say this is my reading of the text and there are others. But that God has entrusted the Thessalonians with the gospel. And that in their suffering they are showing that they are proving worthy of being entrusted that gospel. That they are suffering not just for the sake of the gospel, but alongside sort of Jesus Christ, the way that Jesus suffered for the proclamation of of a righteous and holy God. The Thessalonians are suffering too. All of this is Paul putting in context that's what's going on in Thessalonica, that, that their, their growth in faith and love and even their suffering is not showing that God is mad or angry or has dismissed them or that they're somehow wrong, but rather it is a proof and a showing that they are doing the right thing. In adhering to the faithful proclamation of the gospel, Christ is king and no one else. They are showing, and even in their suffering, they are showing that that proclamation is true and they are holding fast to that. And in that, God is glorified. It might be worthwhile to revisit what's going on in Thessalonica. What kind of suffering are they going through? Right? Probably what's going on is not sort of our, our I'll call it commonplace, no, no suffering is commonplace, but, but kind of everyday suffering, right? We, we suffer, Right? We have bad things happen to us. We get sick. Right, We sometimes don't have answers when we get sick. This is not the kind of suffering that Paul seems to be addressing that's going on in Thessalonica. The suffering they're undergoing, the, 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 what they're enduring is, is suffering that is directly related to their proclamation of Christ as king. I'm going to take some privilege But it's always a good thing to read scripture. To read about what was going on in Thessalonica when Paul was there or just after. So this will give us some sort of context of what's going on and the kind of persecution that they're undergoing. So this is Acts chapter 17 if you want to follow along. After Paul and Silas has passed through, oh, I can't pronounce it, two cities. I didn't practice this one. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue. Paul went in and as was his custom on the three Sabbath day, he argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous and with the help of some ruffians in the market, I like that word ruffians, in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the believers before the city authorities, shouting, These people who have been turning the whole world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contraries to the good of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. The people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this. And after they had taken Baal from Jason and the others, they let them go. So that provides with just a little bit of context of the type of suffering that was likely going on in Thessalonica when Paul wrote this letter. Uh, Now, we're probably not at the point, at least in church history, where there's kind of widespread, systematic persecution of believers. But at this particular time... And in this particular way, these believers in Thessalonica and in cities all throughout Asia Minor and all throughout the ancient Near East are proclaiming something that didn't go over well with the local authorities. They are proclaiming that Christ is king. Okay? They lived in an empire. An empire where on some of their coinage was written, Caesar is king. Caesar is lord. And here these other people are coming in. These Christians are coming in saying, no, Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. If you'll remember back when Jesus was crucified, king of the Jews was placed above his head, right? It was written in Greek and Latin and Aramaic, right? That was why he died. At least the reason they gave was that he was claiming to be king and we have no king but Caesar, the people shouted. So to proclaim another king besides Caesar was treasonous. But not only that, the the people who followed Jesus, they said that they were not only not going to proclaim Caesar as king, but that they were not going to worship any other gods besides Yahweh. And this is a problem in a society where there's no clear distinction between religious and civic life. You see in each of these towns and each of these places was temples to a gods and goddesses, temples to the God of Rome, temples to Caesar in some places. And all of religious life in those cities took place there, but also most of civic life took there. So sometimes you'd be invited to a feast and it'd be in the temple of Artemis, for instance, and sometimes there would be a particular guild of people, let's say the silversmiths in Ephesus, who had a patron god, that is Artemis. And if you chose not to sacrifice to Artemis of the Ephesians, you would incur Artemis's wrath. So they had gods that controlled everything. And for the Jews to step out and say, no, we're not going to sacrifice to this god for the harvest or this god for... Um, for a good birthing season for our cattle, whatever it might be, you not only said, no, I'm not going to participate in that. And people didn't in those days didn't go, okay, that's your choice. They said, no, if you don't participate, if we don't worship correctly, the gods will bring down their wrath upon us. If we don't worship Caesar correctly as Lord, Caesar's going to be mad at us. We need 100% participation in this. And so the people were persecuted because they said, I'm not going to participate in those religious slash civic things. Sometimes they were beaten. Sometimes they were thrown into prison. Paul himself, many, many times thrown into prison. And even at this point, occasionally they were killed. Again, it probably wasn't widespread, systematic yet. It'll get there. But in a society that says sort of anything goes and you must participate in all these things to be a good Roman, a good person, to ensure the goodness of the society, the people of God, the Christians said, no, we will not do that. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Artemis is not God. Artemis is nothing. Jesus is Lord. The people experienced persecution suffering and again not always physical sometimes it was that beaten thrown to prison killed but if your parents want to be good romans and you don't because you follow jesus and no other that creates problem doesn't it if you're a silversmith in ephesus and you say i can't make images of artemis anymore Now your economic life is threatened because they're not going to let you be in that guild anymore. They're not going to throw business your way. They're not going to throw patronage your way. You're bringing dishonor, at least as cultural saw it, upon yourself and upon your people, upon your city, and upon your country. Because the people said, no, it is Christ who is Lord. It is God whom we worship alone and exclusively. And so there was persecution. There was suffering. And, and Paul wants the people to know that they're suffering. Well, God is not saying, I want you to suffer. God is saying, your suffering shows because you are faithful in the midst, because you are steadfast in what we have taught you, and because you proclaim Jesus is Lord and no other, you are suffering. It shows that that, that gospel given to you, that was entrusted to you, that God was right in entrusting it to you because you have not deviated. That middle section of this passage also gives us this kind of reminder that Paul gives the people that God is not blind to the suffering that they undergo. But it, that as, as God sort of witnesses what's happening in their midst, as God witnesses the persecution, the suffering that they have for the sake of the name of Yahweh, God sees, God understands, and God knows. And that there is a time coming when God will make righteous judgment for those who suffer and of those who cause the suffering. In short, God will bring justice one day. I think it's instructive that Paul doesn't say God will bring justice and you are the instrument. He says, God will bring justice on the day when the Lord Jesus will return. Paul has told the the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians what that'll look like, right? I don't want you to be informed about those who have fallen asleep, but the Lord himself will return with a shout of the archangel. The dead will rise from their tombs. We will meet him in the air and be with the Lord together. We will not precede those who have died, but we will join them with God forever in the new kingdom. Paul said that's going to happen. And Paul says, God will deliver justice then. God will honor what the righteous have done. And God will deal with those who refuse to follow the way of the kingdom of God. God reminds the Thessalonians that what they see, and what they are undergoing in their present circumstances is not the last word. It's hard to hear that sometimes when we're suffering. When we're suffering, it's hard to see that there's an end because suffering prolongs everything, right? Hours seem like days, days seem like weeks, weeks seem like years, years seem like decades, It's hard to remember, especially when we're suffering for for righteous stances, for following after Jesus. It's even harder because this should be good, right? It should be good that I'm following Jesus. My my faithful following of Jesus should be rewarded and I'm feeling nothing but suffering and opposition. Paul reminds the Thessalonians. And I suspect he reminds them because they need reminding. They need the encouragement. I could be wrong again, but why would Paul write it if that weren't true? To remind them that there is an end. That God will come to the rescue as we have sung today. That there is a, I'm just going to start quoting song lyrics, blessed assurance, right? That God will aid those who cry out day and night as we talked about last week two weeks ago that there will be an end and that while suffering itself is not good that God does smile on those who are faithful in the midst that it is good to be faithful in the midst and that God himself is faithful in the midst of our suffering as well God sees. God notes oppression and injustice and persecution, and God will grant justice. But Paul as ever is didactic and instructive and reminds the Thessalonians that they cannot rest on their laurels. That is what is the present state must be nurtured and must be encouraged. Right? So so he He kind of ends by saying, I pray that God will fill you more and more so that you might be worthy of the kingdom that is coming of the gospel that you have received. That that as you go, that, that you'll remain faithful, remain steadfast in the suffering. And the result of that, which is wonderful and glorious, is that in them, God is glorified. Again, there is nothing particularly good about suffering, but when we suffer, and when we recognize, and are able to say, "Even so, I will give thanks to God," God is glorified in that suffering, in the hardship. God can be glorified. Uh, in the in the thing that came to mind when Sheldon asked, "When you know what's a time of suffering in your life?" I remember going through that time. I, I won't tell the whole story, but. But our first child, um, Jen and I, she miscarried at about 20 weeks, somewhere around there. And it was devastating. We asked ourselves, what is God seeing wrong with us? What have we done to deserve this? But going through that and coming out of that, I don't know what I would have done if I had not faith. And it wasn't an accomplishment on my part. But if Jesus wasn't there, I don't know how that would have ended and probably not pretty. I doubt it would have been good for my marriage. I doubt it would have been good for my career as a pastor. I don't think it would have been good for my life. It's the kind of thing that will drive you to drink. And worse. But God was there. And even in the midst of that, now it wasn't very immediate, but in the midst of that, we could give testimony. But in that darkest point of our lives, God was there. And it wasn't just some sort of wonderful feeling of the presence of God, although that happened. It was the church that gathered around us. That as we suffered, as we went through that, people loved us, people cared for us, people cried with us. This happened on a weekend, and so I could call somebody and say, I can't preach this weekend. (laughs) And someone said, yeah, of course, I'll be there. I'll do it. And when I came into church that Sunday, I was a wreck. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I sat in the back, but my church gathered around me, prayed for me, held me up. So that while that suffering was not identical to what the Thessalonians are going through, in that suffering, I believe God was glorified. Not because we were great people, but because we could say, nevertheless, God was with us. And that's what Paul wants to encourage in the Thessalonians, as as kind of they go out of this. I, I see that kind of in part. As saying, you have received this grace, you have received this mercy, you have received this gospel. And like Jesus who came before you, you have suffered for the sake of the proclamation of Yahweh God, that Christ is king and there is no other. And as you continue on, God is glorified in you. Again, not that God causes your suffering for his glory, but that as the world and as people around you and as those who have set themselves against the plans and purposes of God have come against you, you have remained steadfast and God, by his mercy, by his grace has been with you and you have proclaimed that and people are seeing that. Churches all over are seeing your faithfulness. They're seeing how you have remained steadfast in the midst. They've seen how God is working in your midst and they give glory to God. Even in suffering. Even in those times where we're prone to say God has abandoned us. So he says, I pray by God's grace and mercy you may continue in your faithfulness. Again, Paul doesn't want them to suffer. Paul says, I pray that in your suffering, in In your times of trial, that as you continue on, you you continue to show and prove yourself worthy of God's grace and kingdom. Again, the, the proving yourself worthy is not saying earn it because you're suffering. But because you are faithful, you are showing that God has chosen well. do so and continue to give glory to God. And, and Paul also says, there's, there's, I won't say a fringe benefit, but there's another part of this, that, that as glor- God is glorified in you, you are glorified as well. You are brought in with, with this wonderful thing that is the church of Jesus Christ, and, and you are shown as an example of faithful suffering, of faithfulness to God in the midst of all kinds of crazy circumstances, so that God is praised because of you. And you are, in a sense, also glorified because you have not wavered in the midst because you have given glory to God even in the midst of these sufferings as I was rereading this passage this morning I, I, I opened the, the passage on, on a Bible app that I have on my, on my phone and I looked at a note that I had written and I, I could look at it again I can't remember when I wrote the note it was probably a year or two ago somewhere in there And it says something like this, that as I read that passage that morning, I heard the the words of Paul and his encouragement to the Thessalonians as, as Jesus' words to me. And what I get, the overwhelming sense that I get from this passage of scripture, or at least I did that morning, is just how much Paul was rooting for the people. Right? I, I want you to remain steadfast. And I don't read that as sort of didactic or saying you have to remain steadfast or else. It, it's just this idea of I, I'm rooting for you. I'm for you. And, and I think behind that is God is for you. Christ is for you. And I kept thinking, what kind of weird conception do I have about God that I, that I sometimes read these things and think that God is trying to get me? That God is waiting for me to mess up. Rather, I, I, I started reading these scriptures anew and saying, wait a minute, God is for me. God, God is encouraging. God is rooting for me. Even when things are horrible and bad, even when things are horrible and bad because of my faith, God's rooting for me. God's rooting for you. That, that's what the encouragement, at least in, in this particular period of my life, that's what I'm reading out of the encouragements of the scriptures God's rooting for you. God wants us to succeed. If God didn't want us to succeed, Jesus wouldn't be necessary. If God was waiting for us to mess up, we were doing a great job all on our own. Right? I mean, the the story of humanity is that we've not done a very good job of stewarding this thing that Jesus has given us or that God has given us. There are pockets of brilliance, but Largely, if God wasn't rooting for us, Jesus wouldn't be necessary. But God is rooting for us. Even when things seem bad, even when things seem bad in regards to our faith and in regards to how others perceive our faith in the midst of even persecution, I think we have it pretty easy in this country, but that may not always be the case. And certainly our brothers and sisters across the world are facing probably more stiff opposition than we are. But even in the midst of that, that is not a sign that God is angry or negative. It's a sign. Their, their faithfulness in the persecution, their faithfulness in the midst, our faithfulness in the midst of that. It's the grace of God at work in us and through us. And God gives us that grace because God wants us to succeed. God wants to have relationship with us. God has gone to unbelievably and extraordinarily long lengths to make sure that we have relationship with God. And so Paul ends by saying, keep it up. Keep it up and God is glorified in you. And and you are sharing in that glory because of your faithfulness, not because of your good works, not because of all the wonderful things you do, but just because you are faithful in the midst, because you are living out this thing that you have received from us. He says, keep going. He's rooting for the Thessalonians. Uh, just reading that, that chapter just is, is overwhelming that Paul is so for and on the side of the Thessalonians. Now you might read Galatians and that's a little bit, feels a little bit different, but I think even there, it's, it's Paul is rooting for his churches that he has started, that he is a part of because he wants to see that the race that they have started with Jesus, wants to see him finish it. God wants to see us finish. God has been rooting us on from the beginning. In fact, in the death and resurrection of Christ, God has said, you've already won even before you start the race. We are constantly praying for you for this that our God will make you worthy of his calling and accomplish every good desire in faithful work by his power. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored by you and you will be honored by him, consistent with the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of this, I think it's important for us to remember, not by might, not by power, but by the spirit of God at work in us. This life we have in him is grace, pure and simple. I am here because of grace. Whether you believe it or not, you are here because of grace. Because God deeply desires us to be in relationship with God's own self. And beyond that, what seems inexplicable to me at times has said, guess What? And I want you to carry that grace to others. When things are great. And when things are hard. I have chosen you to be carriers of my grace to other people. That they may know what you know. That they may have what you have. That you might offer to them in my name this free grace. And then God will be glorified. And you will be glorified. Because if Christ be lifted up, God will draw all people to him. So today, I don't know what you're going through. I know what some of you are going through. I don't know what's in the depths of your hearts, your minds. I don't know if things are wonderful necessarily or bad. Sometimes you tell me things and it might be other things going on. I don't know. But know this, God is for you, and God has called you here by his grace. And in the death of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection, God has given you life and offered you life. And no matter what happens, as we faithfully proclaim this gift, this grace, God is lifted up. And when God is lifted up, amazing things happen. If Christ is lifted up, he will draw people to himself. But it is not by our best efforts or even by our good works that we earn these things. It is a gift of grace so that we can't boast about it. So that, like Paul says, if I boast in anything, I boast in him. The one who has called me and set me free. The one who has saved me from sin and death. And the one who has called me his own. As the worshiping comes back up, let's remember whose we are. And if you're in the midst of suffering, has not forgotten you he's not abandoned you God will grant justice to those who cry out day and night he is with you and your faithfulness in the midst of all of this brings glory to him for you follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ who is God's love letter to the world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus, falsely accused, crucified, dead, buried, and risen again. It's the source of our life and hope.